The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Very good morning, everybody. Welcome to the program. This is Sportbox. Your headlines, NATO follows the G7 in sharpening its criticism of China with the alliance warning Beijing that its ambitions and assertive behavior are a systemic challenge. Leaders also label Russia a security threat with President Biden warning President Putin ahead of their meeting that there will be consequences if jailed opposition leader Alexei Navalny dies. He would do nothing but hurt his relationships with the rest of the world, in my view, and with me. The EU and US are reportedly on the verge of ending a 17-year dispute of aircraft subsidies, potentially as soon as today, with both sides looking to boost transatlantic relations. UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson pushes back England's so-called Freedom Day, extending pandemic lockdown rules for up to a month as Delta variant cases continue to rise. We're so concerned by the Delta variant that is now spreading faster than the third wave that was predicted in the February roadmap. We're seeing cases growing by about 64% per week and in the worst affected areas, it's doubling every week. Plus, you've got two investing titans going head-to-head over Vivendi. Third points, Daniel Loeb reportedly building a stake in the French media giant as Pershing Square's Bill Aquin looks to buy a part of Universal Music Group, with shareholders set to vote on the spin-off next week. So far be it from me to suggest that we may be getting summit fatigue here, but we roll from the six days or so of uh, coverage of the G7 meeting straight into the discussions at NATO in Brussels. And again, it's similar topics uh, that top the agenda for us this morning. NATO leaders have already hit out at China's behaviour, accusing Beijing of presenting systemic challenges to the international rules-based order. The alliance called on China to uphold its commitments and highlighted an increased cyber security risk. The NATO summit, the alliance's first since President Biden took office, with the US leader keen to rebuild trust with allies after President Trump threatened to leave the group. Well, the U.S. leader also addressed Russia's treatment of opposition leader Alexei Navalny, warning the Kremlin that should the Putin critic die in jail, it would hurt Russia's relationship with the world. Speaking in Brussels, Biden addressed the primary threats facing NATO. So President Biden clearly making his views known on this topic. So let's let's just bring Steve in on the conversation here. And Steve, you know, at the top here, I talked about the prospect of uh, some summit fatigue, but the headlines are coming thick and fast. But so much of what we're hearing actually is a repetition of the narrative that you covered so well for us down in Cornwall. 
Oh, bless, bless you, Jeff. Really nice to see you both today. Look, look, uh, this is just the same story, I think, as the G7, and it'll be the same story that we see with the EU summit tomorrow, and it will be the inverse of the story that we see in Geneva on the 16th of this month as well, i.e. there is no doubt in anyone's mind, and I think I've seen detractors of the US policy, I've seen supporters of the US policy, but there is no doubt in anyone's mind that the US is back on a multilateral approach. Now, we know that Paul uh, Donovan of UBS was utterly dismissive of the worth of the G7 yesterday, and that is his view. But what he couldn't deny is that the US is using the G7, is using NATO, will use its alliance and long-term links with EU when it has its meeting tomorrow to build Western democratic alliances uh, across the board. Now, are we looking at expanding, as we spoke with our guests yesterday, uh, alliances in Asia, which would contain the threat of China, potentially, if there is is a threat from China, which is seen as pretty much clear and present. Absolutely. So it's just very, very clear. Whilst President Trump had a go it alone strategy, thought the US could confront its adversaries on a country by country on a bilateral basis. And don't let's forget, uh, bilateral um, uh, talks have worked very well for the US in many, many ways, in many, many spheres over the years. This administration sees multilateralism, building up alliances that were already in place post-war. And we talked a lot about the Atlantic Charter last week, didn't we? Well, a lot of these alliances were pretty much left on the foundations of that meeting in August 1941. That is what the US is doing. It is alliance building. It is ally building. It is supporting its allies. It's just a question of how far those allies want to go down that route in many ways. Because as I was pointing out yesterday and perhaps last week as well, sometimes the political and military stroke defensive area actually encroaches upon the economic realities of a lot of these allies. And we've seen it in no greater place than Germany. Whether Germany can bridge the gap between its economic aspirations with some of its so-called uh, adversaries and indeed the defensive realities remains to be seen because there is a great schism there in what Germany puts forward defensively, for instance, into NATO uh, compared to what it uh, has economically in terms of its ties with the West and with, uh, with the US especially. July the 1st, uh, China has another military parade. And uh, given the comments we heard yesterday out of NATO that China is closing the gap uh, with NATO on military capabilities, I think it'll be key to see what technology uh, will be rolled out. I mean, every year we spend uh, a significant amount of time watching uh, what uh, some of the new weaponry looks like. Even more pressing this year, given the commentary about uh, just uh, how quickly China is coming closer to NATO. Uh, the other big point Charles. here, I think, yes, Steve, jump in. No, no, no. I think you make a brilliant point. And, uh, but, but I think I'd almost argue the, 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 the fact that these great big military parades that, that, that authoritarian regimes uh, and that autocrats love to build with these brilliantly, fantastically processed lines of marching soldiers, there's such an anachronism we're talking about. And I, and I think you've absolutely nailed it with your commentary. What is the new hardware? We won't see it because it's space technology, it's cyberware, it's it's what the latest warheads are on the nuclear thing. So I, I think, and the drones, for instance, they won't be parading up and down a Red Square or whatever the equivalent in China is as well. And I think that's the point. The days where these enormous two million men and women armies are paraded up and down, I, th I think it's an anachronism. And I don't think that's where the real battles are going to be fought going forward as well. So I think when the West sees these beautifully long and crisp armies, whether it's the Russians or whoever it may well be, kind of, I don't I say, who cares about that? It's the other stuff we all care about. It brings a whole new meaning to stealth, doesn't it? As we talk about the, the capabilities around surveillance, and I know early on uh, a new helicopter closely watched as one of the big events this year. But when it comes to, you just mentioned space, 
I mean, worth getting to that as well, that uh, you saw some changes around the clauses yesterday for an out-of-this-world attack, effectively what may go on in space, and not something uh, probably many of us paid attention to in recent years about the clauses, but what would constitute an attack on an ally. But effectively, land, sea, air, or cyberspace was where we were at, but space now worked into uh, some of the the language uh, around uh, what would constitute uh, an effective threat or uh, would require some form of retaliation. I thought that was fascinating as we've seen lots more commercial endeavours to, to move into space at this point. So, so let me just throw in a couple of points here. One is I think it's a very interesting strategy at this stage to, if you are seeking to change the behaviour of Beijing and Russia to use two key events in the Western leaders' diaries to basically just throw criticism at these two regimes. Neither of them take criticism particularly well. They're rather prickly about the way they're being called out here. And as we know, they establish uh, political control over their populations through uh, an assertion of credibility of power effectively and being called out constantly by the West at this stage isn't taken well because it's seen as embarrassing to the administrations. But the other point, you know, you might take that point and say, well, who cares? You know, if they need to be criticised, they need to be criticised. But the question is, have we now totally abandoned the policy that was pursued over the last 20 years, which was one of engagement to try and change behaviour, which doesn't seem to have worked for either of those countries? And the the second point I would make is this. For all the huffing and puffing that we're hearing and all the calling out of Russia and and, um, China at this stage... We know that the roots of the economic relationship are incredibly deep and have become incredibly deep uh, over the last 20 or 30 years here, basically ever since Deng Xiaoping's pivot that capitalism is now good and great and should be embraced. So I think there's a, 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 a real deeper question here about what happens with realpolitik in the economic relationships. Because when we talked to the Greek ambassador yesterday, what I, what I heard was something very different. What I heard was, whatever is said at G7, whatever is said at NATO, we will define our own direct economic relationship with China, and that remains the preserve of the Greek government. So very interesting to see whether this changes the direction of travel as far as Germany is concerned, which has deep relationships with both of these economies, for obvious reasons, or any of the other European countries that at times have only competed against each other to get closer to China. And as we came into this uh, G7 summit, didn't we just see the Irish foreign minister sit down for a bilateral with his Chinese counterpart? So there is a lot of talking going on behind the scenes between these European nations and China, even as at the the headline level for this G7 or for the NATO summit, all we hear is we need to be worried about the way China is moving. It's all about priorities, isn't it? And for many countries, it's about the economic relationship, as you point out, even in Australia. Uh, in the last 24 hours or so, the, the Premier of Western Australia is pushing back against Scott Morrison's 
antagonistic nature uh, the relationship that he now has with China. So anyway, we need to reset this. Uh, they're one of our, our major customers, and particularly for Western Australia, sending those mining exports into China. So they've called for a reset. So that's about the priorities. But also, I think if you look at through the lens of the French president, Emmanuel Macron, one of the biggest threats to civilization. what is it? Uh, environmental change at this point in bringing China into the fold to tackle that particular challenge is seen as key at this stage. Uh, well, let's see if uh, within the alliances, these NATO members can actually get their own act together on trade. The EU and the US are reportedly edging closer to ending a 17-year trade dispute over aircraft subsidies. US Trade Representative Catherine Tai held talks with EU officials on Monday ahead of President Biden's summit with the bloc today. The Financial Times is reporting that a deal could be announced during the meeting. CNBC has not yet confirmed this. Uh, Jacob Kiergaard is a senior fellow at the German Marshall Fund of the United States. Jacob, good morning to you and thank you for joining us here. Um, what progress do you think we're going to see made? Well, I'm, I'm fairly optimistic. I mean, I think the politics are such and the economic logic uh, is that we will finally have a deal. Uh, on Boeing Airbus, which is, of course, good good news for both companies. Uh, but first and foremost, I would say it's probably even better news for the many, many companies in both the EU and the US that are hit by the retaliatory sanctions uh, from this long-running dispute. Because the reality is that there is both a significant China and green ankle on this. Uh, if you can agree to limit subsidies in the US and Europe, uh, also at the WTO, the third up-and-coming uh, large aircraft producer, which is China's Comac, will surely be more affected because they get a lot more subsidies uh, than either Boeing and Airbus does today. And then the environmental angle is, if you like, that, look, uh, we need to develop low-carbon or zero-carbon aviation. That is surely going to require a lot of government subsidies. So uh, if we can get rid of all the other ones, we should at least leave that one uh, uh, open. And what about the fundamental issue of uh, agreement on uh, steel and aluminium subsidies and, and what the tariffs should be in this regard? Well, I, my sense is there that uh, from what Joe Biden has said, uh, and maybe this is his sort of fundamentalist, I mean, he is a bit of a protectionist, if you like, uh, compared certainly to his Democratic predecessor, Barack Obama, uh, I don't think the time is right for that. Uh, my sense is that the administration has clearly signaled that for basically domestic political reasons, they have a tough midterm coming up, uh, the steel industry matters in some of these swing states, uh, they regard, I don't think the tariffs will go away. Uh, we may get them shifted so that they no longer are justified by this if you like, ill-fitting uh, label of national security, uh, but for some other reason. But I don't think Biden is fundamentally ready politically to remove them yet. Uh, and if he's not ready now, though, uh, Jacob, and very good morning to you, when will he be ready? Um, you've already mentioned the tough political agenda, which means we basically have an election every two years in the United States. I was looking at an article where you were comparing him with De uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt rather than, well, actually, uh, B. Johnson rather than Roosevelt as well. But if he can't do it now, when will he be able to do it if he has a tough midterms? 
Well, assuming that the Democrats still uh, control the House of uh, Representatives after the midterms, which is an open question, uh, that that would be certainly one major obstacle because I think it'll be easier for him uh, to, you know, not care about so much about this issue when he's on the ballot himself, which I believe he will be uh, in 2024. Um, so after the midterms, for that reason, I think is is a more fortuitous political timing of it. It might it might also give time for a negotiated solution uh, at the OECD process where they're looking at the global oversupply of steel, which is, of course, back to the basic issue of what to do with China, because a lot of it over overcapacity certainly is Chinese production. Yeah, that's really fascinating. You should mention China because I was coming to you there. You perhaps uh, foresaw that. Uh, COMAC is a word that you, you've mentioned in your notes as well. A lot of our viewers won't be aware of it. But of course, it is the Chinese threat on the horizon uh, to both Boeing and Airbus, certainly for a lot of those international customers as well. Uh, how tight is that battle going to be? And is that why we're, tr- we're getting closer to Airbus and Boeing ending their dispute so they can move on technologically and face down the threat that is COMAC? Well, I mean, I think the reality is that Comac is still, if you like, an upstart company. It doesn't have actually it hasn't sold many aircrafts outside of China and it hasn't made the really big wide body intercontinental aircraft yet. But it is working on it and it is clearly a priority for the Chinese government. They are they have a uh, also a joint venture or at least a tight collaboration with Russian aircraft manufacturers. So so it's coming. Uh, but again, it is relying very heavily on uh, government subsidies in, in many ways, in the same way that Boeing, uh, sorry, that, that Airbus did uh, in its early years, which is, as I said, why uh, in some ways, if you wanted to maintain the duopoly uh, on this market, uh, you wanted to cut a deal between the U.S. and Europe and preferably now. Jacob, can I ask you about vaccine patents? Uh, because there's been a fight between the US and EU about what to do with intellectual property. And the European perspective has been, the, what's the point of sending this IP overseas to uh, particular countries where they may not have the know-how and ability to manufacture the vaccine anyway, whereas uh, they've been quickly exporting any excess product and allocating to, to make sure the vaccine goes to other countries versus the United States that's been inoculated the population first. What happens from here? Because it felt as though the Europeans recently threw it back into the American's court saying, come up with a concrete plan, as in come up with something that we can all support where it's properly thought out. Yeah, I mean, I think if you read the G7 communique on this, it, it seems to me at least that the vaccine waiver strategy is, has been put back on the back burner, if you like. Uh, uh, there's certainly a lot more in the communique talking about licensing and voluntary agreements and the need to scale up production right now. Uh, that is far better done on a voluntary basis, working with the companies that develop the technology, because as we have seen, you know, uh, producing uh, vaccines at scale uh, is difficult. Doing it from scratch without the help of, of uh, the incumbent, if you like, developing company uh, is going to be very difficult. Uh, so in that sense, I think the, uh, the EU has essentially won that argument, uh, partly also because the process at the WTO was this waiver was supposed to be discussed. Uh, we saw that India and South Africa a few weeks ago responded to the uh, opening from the Biden administration by some very, very 
very far-reaching demands, which basically said we want perpetual waivers well beyond uh, pharmaceutical-related products and and sort of in in pharmaceutical more broad, sorry sorry vaccine-related uh, products. Uh, pandemic-related products in, into pharmaceutical more broadly. And that's obviously completely unacceptable to the Biden administration. Uh, so this is not a WTO process that, in my opinion, is going to go anywhere. Uh, and now, of course, Joe Biden also has the advantage that he has now, if you like, a new talking point, just to be a little cynical here. Uh, he has because he has promised to donate 500 million uh, doses, which, of course, the U.S. government is buying at costs uh, from Pfizer. Uh, so he's seen to doing something, uh, even if the uh, vaccine strategy or vaccine uh, patent, patent waiver strategy is now essentially uh, not pursued anymore. Jacob Kierkegaard, thank you very much for joining us. Senior fellow German Marshall Fund of the United States. We've got some news crossing now about a UK-Australia trade deal. A confirmation just hitting the tape that it has been agreed to this, according to the Australian Trade Minister. No real details at this stage, but I can tell you the chief concerns have been over farming, what uh, may be arriving into this country and what that would mean for, for UK farmers. Also, for Australia, in terms of the opposite direction, one of the arguments has been about cheaper meat being introduced into the UK and lower standards, which jumps out to me because it's not one thing Australia is particularly known for in terms of cheaper meat. It's usually higher quality, uh, very decent, as you point out, Wagyu beef that comes from Australia. Um, the other point, though, is that this is a significant one because it is the, the first deal that the UK has inked since leaving the EU. So somewhat symbolic in a way and, uh, of course, a very strong cultural links with Australia. Yeah, and I think the fact that this is the first deal that's been negotiated from scratch yes. also makes a difference. This is not a reconfirmation of uh, an existing arrangement. Um, the other thing that I thought was interesting, the BBC write-up on this talks about how this deal was secured over dinner in Downing Street between yes. Boris Johnson and Scott Morrison. And, and what they had for that dinner was Welsh lamb, Scottish smoked salmon, and it was all washed down with Australian wine. Well, that'll be China's loss, because if they don't want Australian wine, there are plenty of Brits who are happy to drink it. Well, that's also one of the, the key arguments, isn't it, about uh, what sort of wine product comes on to this side of the world. And I think uh, the, the British customer has well and truly been a supporter of Australian wine over the years. It's been uh, fairly fulsome on the shelves, hasn't it? And then fairly, fairly fulsome on the, the kitchen benches at home. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I wouldn't, uh, wouldn't disagree with that. Uh, we'd better take a break here. We need to put in the commercials uh, to pay for the programming. So we'll be back in a moment. The Fed faces calls to pull back on its bond buying plans and begin the so-called taper at its meeting this week as concerns over the impact of pandemic era stimulus rise. But will they even begin talking about talking about talking about taper? Uh, we'll have a conversation about that when we come back and what some major bankers think should happen. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com.
on, let's take a look at this market. Uh, what we had, again, a lot of wait-and-see action for the Fed, the two-day meeting that begins today. Investors, as you can see, again, pulling back on the Dow. We've witnessed that in a number of sessions. A little bit of just lessening up of positions there, but piling into the other end of the market around technology. You'll note Apple was one of the big moving stocks for the NASDAQ and the S&P in session yesterday, as both of these major markets had fresh records. For the S&P 500, it's been around this peak territory for a number of sessions and eking out yet another one yesterday. But for the NASDAQ, it was a return to a fresh record uh, level. So uh, the bounce that we've seen, not really witnessed since about uh, late April. So the market lifting off 14,174. But uh, what we've got, a uh, very big event risk around the Fed. And uh, market positioning, I think, at this point, uh, fascinating. Investors are looking for any increase in the number of FOMC members who think rates will increase in 2023. So that could change assumptions around interest rates. But, of course, any talk about a taper, too, is uh, very much what the market is closely watching. So, Treasuries, let's take a look at where we stand. We've uh, been around that three-month low recently. We lifted off it, and we're currently we're sitting at 1.48%. But uh, I think a lot of our traders are watching for any technical repositioning. You see a little bit of it before the event, but also after as well. So well, we're watching closely uh, this yield curve as a result this week. Uh, a quick look at uh, how the commodities complex is shaping up too around this demand story. Brent and WTI both perched high, about a third of a percent uh, bounce for both. And you can see trading above $70 for Brent and WTI. Gold has been somewhat of a supported trade of late around this inflation story, but just peeling back morning session, drifting off by about a tenth of a percent. And let's get into the Asian trade because we've seen a couple of markets out of action returning to the trade today from Hong Kong to China and uh, the catch-up mode not positive for those two indices, both underwater at this stage. Australian stocks bouncing 1% also was out of action yesterday. So the return there leading to a pop on the markets, a uh, very similar picture to Japanese stocks today where you are seeing those gains. Uh, let's take a look at the opening calls in Europe. We had a day yesterday that was mostly positive across on the stocks of 600, about two tenths higher, seventh, seventh positive session in a row. So there's been a little bit of momentum on this side of the world. The FTSE also showing that strength and again chasing another 21 points this morning. But you can see in lockstep, we are all seeking green areas across on these core markets before the trade. Steve. Thanks, Karen. Fed officials expected to begin discussing plans to scale back the central bank's $120 billion monthly bond buying program at a two-day meeting this week. The chair uh, of the Fed is Jerome Powell, and he said in April that the Fed had not begun to even think about tapering and has not laid out a timeline for a dialing back of the scheme as policymakers hope to see further recovery in the U.S. labor market. Well, speaking to CNBC, the heads of Morgan Stanley and Bank of America expressed concerns over recent rise in prices. We see inflation creep in, and the question is, when does the Fed move? It has to move at some point. And I think the bias is more likely earlier than the current dots would suggest rather than later. And that's what I expressed. Obviously, I have no special wisdom on it, but my gut tells me this economy is recovering faster. Inflation is moving quicker and it may not be quite as transitory as we all think. The great debate is, you know, when is transitory, not transitory? Well, after the fact, you figured out it wasn't. You're never going to figure out it isn't on the way in by definition because you're saying it's temporary and you're in the middle. And so I think... That's the real question. And I think that we have to be much more careful right now than we've been because you're seeing wages grow. You're seeing uh, sticky prices grow. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market moving news, you can head to CNBC.com.
Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show weekdays on CNBC.